This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Pink Moon Murders, a production of iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Episode 5, A Pink Moon and Singing Insects. I keep wondering how the murders were carried out, including how the killer got past all the dogs. Solve that, and you might solve the crime, Tony Roden had told me. Chris's pit bull and boxer were so big and vicious that when Tony visited, he wouldn't leave his car until Chris came and calmed them and Leonard said they would eat up even visitors they knew. Plus, the coonhounds that slept outside had such keen senses they were prized for tracking down prey. I wish the investigators would release more details than the absolute minimum they've released so far. But Tony, Leonard Manley, Hannah Hazel Gilly's mom, Brittany Pettit, and all the other loved ones are more anxious than me. And so is Geneva Roden, the matriarch of her clan. She lost two sons, three grandkids, a nephew, a former daughter-in-law, and a soon-to-be granddaughter-in-law. And she couldn't see her great-grandkids who were in state custody. I feel so bad for all of them. We know a full moon was shining on the night of April 21st to April 22nd, 2016. Specifically, it was a pink moon, the fourth full moon of the year. It's not named for the color of the moon, but for Phlox subulata, a wildflower that's native to the eastern United States and Canada. It's also called moss phlox and moss pink. Long ago, indigenous people observed that its beautiful star-shaped flower appears at that time of the year. I can't get over the impact of the full moon in the pitch blackness of a rural wooded area without streetlights. But did it push the killer over the edge to carry out the murders? Or did the extra illumination simply make his job easier? Based on evidence collected at the crime scenes, Attorney General DeWine, at an early press conference, called this an old-fashioned, cold-blooded, calculated massacre. And Sheriff Reeder said, This was very methodical. This was well-planned. This was not something that just happened. This was something that planned. A family was targeted. Most of them targeted while they were sleeping. Farmers pay close attention to nature for their crops and livestock. So if the killer was a farmer or just a calculated, methodical person, he probably considered the moon's phases. Like I said in an earlier episode, I doubt he carried a flashlight. But the word lunatic comes from the Latin word for moon, luna, And legends like people transforming into werewolves during full moons don't appear out of nowhere. There's plenty of anecdotal and even some scientific evidence that full moons affect people's brains. My uncle John was a pediatrician until he retired, and my mom was his office manager. She said they were always busy with hurt kids on days after full moons. So it is possible the full moon pushed the perpetrator into temporary insanity. I've also been thinking about another unnatural element, singing insects. My parents live in a Cincinnati suburb that's 95 miles west of Union Hill Road, and their house is about the same distance from a forest as Roden Homes, about 60 feet, with grass in the middle. On cool spring nights with the windows open when I visited, 
I'd hear insects when I lay down to sleep. And on hot summer nights with the windows closed and air conditioning running, I'd still hear them because they sang louder at that time of year. The insects created such a screeching cacophony that each time I visited, it took days before I could tune them out. So I'm wondering if the killer was able to sneak up to rodent homes and unlock the doors or climb through the open windows without startling all those dogs because his footsteps were muffled by singing insects. Remember, there were no crunchy leaves or snow on the ground, but footsteps do make a little noise. Late one night under a full moon, the corn moon, I drove by myself from my hotel in Waverly to Union Hill Road 20 miles away and recorded insects in front of Chris Roden's vacant homestead. It was September 1st with the moon partially obscured by clouds and rain occasionally drizzling down. I set my microphone on my car hood and pressed record. I wanted to learn more about the insect noise, so I checked with Dr. Becca Brody, a professor of entomology at Ohio University. She listened to my recording and then wrote in an email the loudest sound is a chorus of crickets overlapped by katydids. Katydids are easy to identify because they sound like they are saying Katie did and Katie didn't. Katie did, Katie didn't. I asked if a full moon affects insects, and she exclaimed that it would definitely increase insect activity. And then Dr. Brody surprised me. She wrote, quote, 2016 was a year for periodical cicadas, or 17-year cicadas in Ohio. They spend 17 years in the soil as larvae, baby cicadas, and emerge in huge numbers once the soil warms. Their numbers peaked in June, but they would have been out there in April too. They make a very loud, shrill sound." End quote. I looked on a scientific map that tracked the cicadas that year. They're called Brood 5, and it does show them emerging in parts of Ohio and neighboring eastern states of West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, and Maryland. But they pretty much stopped at the Scioto River, which cuts down the middle of Pike County, and the rodents lived about 10 miles west of it. So it is possible cicadas added to the insect cacophony at rodent homes on the night of the murders, but not likely. I didn't hear cicadas when Leonard was speaking with reporters at the Union Hill roadblock a couple of days afterward. And when I asked my buddy, the deputy who spent two shifts on Union Hill Road, he didn't recall hearing or seeing them. But if you've experienced cicadas, you don't forget. You see them literally everywhere outdoors. And you can't avoid their deafening noise around the clock or crunchiness while walking on them. Their density can surpass one million cicadas per acre. So insect noise, with or without cicadas, did muffle the footsteps of the killer so he could get past the coonhounds. But those dogs might have been a non-issue. Maybe they were sleeping in the middle of that night or howling so wildly under the full moon that the rodents ignored them. To get an authority's perspective, I spoke with Dr. Paul Carr, a second-generation veterinarian in Scioto and Pike counties. Is it possible, you think, they could have been sleeping and just not heard someone walking up quietly? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, they would they would have be barking like crazy. Yeah, they'd be barking like crazy. You know, they don't sleep enough to, like... No, so... no, no. They'd, they'd be up. Dogs don't sleep. They just intermittent, you know, yeah. like cats. Cats don't sleep very, very seldom, particularly coonhounds. They'd be up uh, checking things out, wanting to see 
Yeah. Yeah, I've had I've had two dogs, and I know they wake up pretty easily. But oh, very easily, and but they would bark. Oh, oh, they'd just be carrying on back here. Doctor Carr said the dogs probably knew the killer, and barked when he approached. But the rodents might have ignored the barking as nothing new. However, if the dogs didn't know the killer or killers, they would have barked louder and wilder than normal, attracting the rodents' attention. Those animals would have known those people that came in there. They had to know them. I mean, when, when, when anytime you go to a, particularly in the morning, like that, early in the morning, middle of the night, sometimes. And I mean, you know, I, those hounds would have just been barking and, and, and all the time. But maybe no one cared. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the neighbors, and of course there was no neighbor, the hounds just, just carry on all the time. So maybe instead of the killer sneaking up, he simply walked up. Regardless of how the killer got past the dogs, he did, and he committed the worst crime on sleeping people, some with babies nearby. It's hard to believe anyone deserved this, but even if someone did, at least from the killer's perspective, there's no chance all eight of them were deserving. Or is there? And the killer's gotten away with it all this time. Five years have passed and no one has faced a criminal trial. No one has been brought to justice, and a killer might still be on the loose. Acts of mass violence might still be lurking inside someone in southern Appalachian, Ohio, waiting to escape. April turned into May, and then June, with Mother's Day and Father's Day passing painfully for survivors. Leonard visited his daughter's grave that year, instead of her visiting him at home. Kendra badly missed her dad, Kenneth, and her mother, Geneva, missed him too. But, Kendra told a reporter, I can't ever lose hope on seeing the horrible, corrupted people who did this to my family be brought to justice. Charlie Gilly, who Hannah Mae Roden dated briefly, didn't have custody of their daughter Kylie on Father's Day. He told the Cincinnati Enquirer that he was spending four to five hours each evening at the side of his sister, Hannah Hazel. He was so sad over the loss of everyone that he couldn't sleep at nights. He went to the small cemetery where his sister was buried to try to find peace. During these months, investigators questioned many more people and analyzed many more pieces of evidence. By early July 2016, they had received 700 tips from the public. Reports of search warrants being executed trickled out, but they were sealed from the public so details were unknown. No lasting arrests had been made. Investigators were desperate for leads. Todd, the lifelong Pike County resident and former cop, told me he was sure someone in the community had information and was remaining silent. We were driving on a back road when he spoke. I think whoever holds back needs it. They, they need examined, because this is a shit and shame. Let all this happen, and you hold it back, not tell nothing. On Saturday, July 2nd, the Pike County Demolition Derby took place at the fairgrounds. Organizers sold bracelets that said, remembering 926, which was Frankie Roden's derby number. He chose that number because his son Brentley was born on the 26th day of the ninth month, September. And attendees were encouraged to wear orange for the victims. Orange t-shirts saying, Roden proud, Roden strong, on the front were worn by spectators and drivers alike. And on the back was written, in loving memory, followed by the names of the eight victims. These included Derby veteran Frankie and newcomer little Chris the 16-year-old who was going to make his debut there. 
The older generation of rodent men had retired from the sport long ago. A manly, from Dana's side of the family, ran a car painted orange and black with the words Rodent Proud, Rodent Strong, and Rest in Peace 926. And a young man on the rodent side welded his family's last name onto little Chris's car, which he wanted to compete in. Kendra Roden, who is Kenneth's daughter and Hannah Mae's cousin and best friend, rode on that car, fly high, babes. Kendra later told a reporter, Derby is one of the things we all enjoy. She added, it's like Christmas in July. At the end of July began the 107th annual Pike County Fair, also at the fairgrounds. The Wholesome Family event awarded winners for baking the best apple pies and celebrated a girl being named Pike County Fair Queen. It featured lots of food, rides, and games, as well as harness racing, horse mule and tractor pulls, dairy cattle and hog shows, and a beef fitting contest. It was a county fair that many outsiders would think was more Oklahoma than Ohio. And there was a demolition derby. It started at seven o'clock, prime time, on Saturday and Sunday evenings. Included were a smash it class, minis, street stock, mod, and mowers, and the bleachers were packed. Tributes to the rodents continued. The Pink Moon Murders will return after the break. And now, back to the Pink Moon Murders. Over the next months, the investigation into the murders seemed to stall as authorities released fewer and fewer details and national and local reporters moved on to other news. Rodens, Manleys, and Gillies continued to grieve and want justice, but most residents of Southern Ohio moved on with their lives. In August, officials in Kenton County, Kentucky, which is part of Greater Cincinnati, did announce a possible connection between an earlier double murder there and the Roden murders. A drug trafficker and his girlfriend were shot to death in their bed, execution style, and kids at their home were not hurt. But that turned out to be a tragic coincidence. Also in August, during a court hearing regarding if custody records for babies found at rodent murder scenes should become public, Sheriff Charlie Reeder said the babies remained in grave danger, and so were the unnamed foster parents assigned by the state. I don't want to receive another call about another homicide, a brutal homicide, in my county, he stated. I do not want to ever find victims 9, 10, and 11 and have them be those three minor children. It was unclear if police had received tips or found evidence suggesting those babies might be in harm's way or if Sheriff Reeder was purely using his professional judgment. The judge at that hearing said it seemed the killer had deliberately not harmed the babies, but the sheriff didn't agree. He believed that if they had not been discovered that morning, if Bobby Joe Manley hadn't stopped by to feed the animals and found them, they might have died of starvation or something else. In other words, the cold-hearted killer might have wanted them dead but couldn't bring himself to murder young children, to shoot sleeping babies in the head. Yet after that hearing, Tony Roden said that he didn't believe the little ones were still in danger. He said that if the killer wanted them dead, they'd be dead already. Regardless, the killer wouldn't risk a second attack, especially knowing so many people in rural Ohio slept with guns by their beds. Leonard Manley said the same. He posited that Sheriff Reeder, who was up for re-election in a couple of months, was grandstanding. Whether he was grandstanding as a politician or being heroic as the county's top law enforcement officer, 
Sheriff Reeder repeated a few times at that hearing that those babies remained in grave danger. He also made a startling statement. He said that there was more than one killer the night of April 21st to April 22nd. This was the most important development made public in the case. Most people believed that with the stealth and precision involved, there was only one killer. This blew my mind. Now I was wondering how two or more killers got past all those dogs and sneaked into all four homes. But the sheriff didn't provide details to the court that day, and he refused to clarify with members of the media. Months later, another case interested investigators. Josh Roden, who was related to many of the murder victims, was charged with aggravated drug trafficking in Pike County. Josh had almost $8,000 worth of illegal pills, some marijuana, $8,000 in cash, and nine guns. Could his alleged drug trafficking be connected to the commercial grow operation at his relatives' homes? To a Mexican drug cartel? Maybe even the Sinaloa cartel? Josh had a drug history. In 2003, he pleaded guilty to drug possession, and in 2006, he pleaded guilty to possession of marijuana. But with this case, the charge was ultimately dismissed. He only had to pay court costs. And later, Josh's sister Violet was found shot to death in a Pike County forest. The sheriff's office asked Ohio's BCI to handle the investigation because of the mystery surrounding her death and certain similarities to the murders of her eight relatives. Eventually, the coroner and BCI announced it was a suicide. Violet shot herself in the chest. She was another troubled person struggling with addiction and depression. Time kept passing slowly for the Roden, Manley, and Gilly families. No big developments in the case were announced, so in March 2017, Wilma, a sister of Chris and Kenneth, helped create reward posters that were hung around Pike County. The reward was $10,000 for a tip leading to a conviction, and the poster showed the eight victims smiling during happy days. This case is so dark and mysterious, and the murders were so brutal with multiple killers that I've been thinking of the clutters. In 1959 in rural Finney County, Kansas, the Clutter family, two parents and their teenage son and daughter, was shot to death at home in the middle of the night. Author Truman Capote wrote a best-selling book about the Clutter murders. Titled In Cold Blood, it became a classic of American literature. But if you haven't read it, you might have seen the movies adapted from it. Kansas investigators eventually received a tip naming two men as the murderers and arrested them in a different state. It turned out the men were complete strangers to the Clutters. They had served time in prison where a fellow inmate, a former farmhand of the Clutters, told them the family's house had a safe with valuables. So could the bad guys in the Roden murders be complete strangers too? On April 13, 2017, Attorney General Mike DeWine and Sheriff Charlie Reeder held a press conference. DeWine reported they had received 883 tips, conducted 465 interviews, and served 38 search warrants, and carried out 60 cyber extractions. He also corrected himself from an early press conference when he said three of the four crime scenes had marijuana growing. The number was actually two, at Chris's and Kenneth's residences. And DeWine stated he was deeply frustrated at this point. A reason for holding the press conference was to raise more awareness for the case and generate more tips. Although BCI is the lead investigative agency, the Pike County Sheriff's Office continues to this day to assist with manpower. 
which strains the resources of the small agency that still has to patrol 440 square miles with only 13 deputies. Here's Sheriff Reader. I think about this every morning. It's the last thing I think about every night. I enter my office. The first thing I do is go to the computer and check our tip line to see if there's something new, something different, something that may give the investigators and the agents that little piece that we may be missing. I see the look of disappointment when I speak with the family and I look into their eyes and the grieving that they still have. He became emotional as he continued. There's babies that will grow up without their mothers or their grandparents. <clears throat> They've missed birthdays, anniversaries. I think about them on Thanksgiving and Christmas and what the family may be going through. Then the sheriff had a message directly for the killers. You came in like thieves in the night and took eight lives, some being children. In the most horrific way I've ever seen in my 20 plus years, we are getting closer. We will find you. The family and the victims will have justice one day. We are coming. We will find you. We will arrest you and you will be prosecuted. Sheriff Reeder was a badass with compassion. A week later, the Attorney General's office released a video of Geneva Roden, a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, crying for more help from the public. It was picked up by several TV news stations and websites. I'd just like to say, from my mother's heart, that I hurt so bad inside. From the day that I found out, and I'd like to say if there's someone out there that knows anything about what happened, would they please, please come forward? The hurt don't go away from a mother. I think about a day and night. I lose a lot of sleep over it. But still, I try to go on. But I'm begging to you to please come forward. For the anniversary of the murders, Pastor Phil of Union Hill Church hosted a vigil that he opened with a prayer, followed by the reading of the victims' names. Attendees lit candles. Among them were Rodens, Manleys, and other loved ones, including Kenneth's ex-wife Stacy and Hannah Mae Roden's last boyfriend, Corey Holdren, but also BCI agents, deputies, Mike DeWine, and Charlie Reeder. The Attorney General and the Sheriff both spoke, my granddaughter sang, and uh, very, very somber uh, service, but yet uh, I, I felt uh, a timely thing for the family and uh, well, well attended by family and friends and church. And uh, so we, we done everything we can to serve the, or could to serve the family and reach out to them. The investigators might have also had an ulterior motive for attending. 
On that day, they placed a GPS tracking device on the truck of James Manley, the brother of Dana and Bobby Joe. He was the one who had discovered Dana's body. Six days later, James discovered the device and destroyed it. He was promptly charged with two felonies, tampering with evidence and vandalism, marking the first criminal charges being filed in the Roden murders case. He went to jail. This was a major surprise, another game changer, possibly. Rodens, Gillies, and others in the community were shocked and confused, but Manleys were outraged. They claimed there was no way James was connected to the murders. James's dad, Leonard, said the charges were bullshit and police and prosecutors were showing their desperation. Every friggin' day, someone is tearing the scabs off us, he told the media. It's one thing if you lose eight people and then they blame your boy for it. Leonard had a warning for investigators if they put a GPS tracker on his vehicle. You know, if they put one on mine, I'm gonna destroy it too. Leonard said that before James's arrest, investigators had taken him from his job near Dayton, James worked as a freelance lumberjack, for a polygraph test. I wonder how many lie detector tests James, Leonard, Bobby Joe, and other Manleys had taken by now. Evidently, James didn't do well on his. According to a search warrant that Leonard later provided to members of the media, Investigators were alleging that James's truck had been, quote, used in connection with an aggravated murder or by a person intending such a crime, end of quote. But further details were unknown. Attorney General DeWine, through a spokesperson, said James was a, quote, witness, end quote, who perhaps could give info about the murders. The spokesperson would not elaborate. That allegation has all sorts of implications. I looked into court records and saw that James did have a criminal history in Pike County. He pleaded no contest in 2009 to menacing. He was sentenced to six months of standard probation and was required to refrain from all contact with Cindy Rooker and Cody Cox, whoever they are. The sheriff's office returned to James a rifle that it had confiscated at the time. James was shackled while sitting quietly in court for his arraignment for the tampering and vandalism charges. During it, Bail was set at an incredibly high $80,000. But after his wife paid 10% in cash, he was released. And weeks later, authorities dropped both charges. Maybe they didn't have enough evidence to convict him, although it seems they did. James wasn't speaking publicly, but his dad pretty much admitted both charges were valid. Maybe they just decided to focus on other issues, but they did reserve the right to recharge him. Leonard was beyond frustrated. He called police and prosecutors investigating the murders of his daughter, three grandchildren, and other relatives dumb and said he was not optimistic they would find the killers. I'm to the point that I don't get to give a blank to blank about anything. I mean, I, I watch TV and people go off the deep end, and I can see why. The system sucks. More Pink Moon murders after a word from our sponsors. We now return to the Pink Moon Murders. We don't know what James said during his polygraph tests, but I've often wondered if he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder after walking into his sister Dana's trailer that morning and seeing her shot to death and hearing a baby crying. Maybe he got nervous and misspoke, leading investigators not to believe him. Or maybe he really was involved with the murders, Going into May, the pleas from Geneva, the sheriff, and the attorney general reinvigorated the case. Dozens of more tips came in. 
On May 12, 2017, investigators searched two properties connected to the family of Jake Wagner, who was Hannah Mae Roden's ex-boyfriend and first baby dad. And the next day, they searched a third property. Was this another game changer or another lead that would fizzle out? Investigators searched the house and land near the village of Peebles, Adams County, where Jake lived with his mom, dad, and brother. Investigators carried shovels, metal detectors, and plenty of weapons and body armor for any possible gunfight. Word spread and soon news helicopters were flying overhead while reporters on the ground tried to figure out what was going on. Neither Sheriff Reeder nor Attorney General DeWine would comment. No confidential sources came forward and search warrants as well as court orders were sealed. But by the end of the day, witnesses saw Pike County deputies tow two four-wheelers while other investigators carried evidence bags into BCI vans. The second property was a car lot in Peebles, with Sheriff Reeder himself joining in on the search. Media eventually reported that Jake and his brother, who were diesel mechanics, occasionally fixed vehicles for the owner and that Jake, for an unknown reason, had dropped off two pickup trucks and three trailers. They were packed with personal items, including a rocking horse and a stuffed bear, and Jake needed a place to stow them for a few days until he found a permanent place. After their search, investigators towed away a trailer. And a third property was searched the following day. It was Flying W Farms, owned by Frederica and George Wagner Jr. in Pike County, and reporters quickly figured out they were Jake's grandparents. But no details of the search emerged. Frederica and George owned almost 1,800 acres on and around that farm. So members of the media didn't learn much about any evidence taken from the three properties. But one official did tell reporters that he thought Jake's family had recently sold their house near Peebles, and they checked property records to confirm that. That whole weekend, they tried getting in touch with the Wagners to ask what was going on, but struck out. And Rodens, Manley, and Gillies said they didn't know anything. Locals' heads were spinning at this weekend of bombshell news developments and the lack of specifics. Few details emerged over the next weeks, and the Wagners remained incommunicado. But on June 6, Attorney General DeWine and Sheriff Reeder put out a joint news release. They were taking the highly unusual step of asking the public for information regarding George Wagner III, nicknamed Billy, and his wife Angela, who were both 46 years old, as well as their sons George IV, who was 25, and Edward, nicknamed Jake, who was 24. Photos were provided. DeWine and Reeder stated, quote, Investigators are interested in receiving information regarding any interaction, conversations, dealings, or transactions that the public may have had with these individuals, which could be personal, business, or otherwise. Specifically, information could include, but is not limited to, information regarding vehicles, firearms, and ammunition. The persons listed are formerly residents of Peterson Road in Peebles, Ohio, and are currently believed to be residing in Alaska. End of quote. Alaska? What is that all about? Another surprise. The news release ended with asking people to call in with confidential tips and reminding them they could receive the $10,000 reward. Law enforcement officials released few details over the next months, even though Southern Appalachian Ohioans were roiling with thoughtful speculation and absurd rumors. Meanwhile, the Wagners established new lives in rural Alaska 
and whatever secrets they might have had stayed with them. Yet they moved back to Ohio less than a year later, this time to South Webster, a village of 800 people in Scioto County. And then suddenly, on November 13, 2018, Billy, Angela, Georgia Forth, and Jake were arrested, and each was charged with eight counts of aggravated murder with death penalty specifications. Billy's and Angela's moms were arrested too. Baby Sophia's great-grandmothers, they were charged with accessory crimes. So if these allegations are correct, why would one family want to wipe out another? What could possibly lead to such a horrific family feud? How could six members of one family work together to massacre eight members of another? The Pink Moon Murders is a Cavalry audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Written and narrated by David Ratterman. Produced by Brandon Morgan of Cavalry Audio and Casey Whelan for Whelan Productions. Edited by Tim Mulhern. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.